Hello and welcome to Pods Like Us. I'm Martin Quibell, known to my friends as Marv. And this time, first up, I am joined by a friend of mine from the show when they was fab, Ed Chen. We'll be chatting with our main guest. Hey, Ed, thanks for being here. Hey, Martin. Before we get started, just like there's the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, there's Star Trek and there's Star Wars. Yes, there is. And you can be fans of both. Exactly, but you're going to prefer one over the other. It will always be Star Trek first for me. <laughs> and uh, my, my main guest today, I've been looking forward to chatting with this this guy for a long time. I've been listening to uh, the Mission Log podcast for a good few years now. It's been going since um, 2012, so coming up on 10 years then, is it uh, John Champion? Yes, it is. And a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, 10 years in about three weeks will actually be our 10th anniversary date. We we launched it at the Star Trek Las Vegas convention in 2012. And, um, I, you know, with the exception of a couple of pauses here and there, um, pretty much released every week. We're up to 400 and 55 episodes now that we've recorded, not including supplemental shows, not including live shows. So it's been a big, big chunk of my life for the last decade. How does it feel to know that it's probably never going to end? If Star Trek keeps coming out at the rate that it is, and you keep doing one a week, you're only, what, halfway, three quarters of the way through Voyager right now? Uh, not even. We just wrapped the first season of Voyager. That That's how new we are to that. And uh, to be honest, it's just as daunting as I, I believe it was within the first month when we had started. Somebody wrote in and said, at this rate, it'll take you 15 years to get through what was then the Trek canon at that point. And that ended with Enterprise. And, uh, of course, you know, you take a little time off here and there and then um, uh, maybe slip in an extra show here and there. Then the J.J. Uh, Abrams movies, you know, they spawned a few sequels. And then the announcement about Discovery meant, well, OK, I guess it's just a never ending thing at this time. Although, although I keep thinking that um, when we when we finish Enterprise and then do the J.J. Abrams movies, Um, I think modern Trek, new Trek since 2017 will require a different approach. I don't think we can do the regular mission log format when we look at, um, discovery or Picard. Um, we're already doing mission log for prodigy separately. And then we, we do lower decks on the live show. That one could possibly stand up an episode-by-episode episode analysis. But I think the way they're doing, and certainly Strange New Worlds can, uh, but Discovery and Picard are very different animals. Doing the serialized uh, storytelling will require a, a different format for Mission Log. Have you thought about what that might be? I've thought about it, and I think the easy but not so easy way to do it is either you take a season and you treat it like, say, a multi-part episode, like, uh, well, you, you could theoretically do one long podcast about a season of Discovery, or you break it down into chunks. You do like a first act, second act, third act for the entire season. 
and then that that's how you um you you wrap up the fact that there are multiple overlapping storylines getting you through the whole season um but i don't know maybe i'll change my mind by the time we get there <laughs> we'll see and that's something the creators have not been great about doing you know per episode is sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't yeah, yeah. I mean, there are very few exceptions in Discovery that really can stand up to analysis on their own. The rest of the time, you have to take it as a serialized show that it is. Um, and I'll, I'll give them props, you know, uh, by the time you get to, I feel like especially with seasons three and four, by the time you get to the end of those seasons, they have told a singular Star Trek story. Here's the moral meaning message. Here's the idea we're trying to get across. But in the modern era, it takes you 10 to 13 hours to get there instead of 48 minutes. But then with the things like, you know, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, you had the you had you had long periods where it was a long arc like the Dominion, the Dominion War, for instance, where that was essentially the same story told throughout a couple of seasons, essentially. Well, you, you had the Klingon War arc and you had the Dominion War arc, but that that was only designed as a continuous storyline for the final nine episodes. So, and even then, um, it, it was. You know, TV at that time in the 90s, they still knew that they were syndicated. They still knew that these could be broken up. While the storyline is continuous, it was easier than I thought it would be to break those down episode by episode because you could still get to the end and and you could say, all right, we know there's more to come. We know that we haven't resolved this entirely. However, we can focus on a character here. We can focus on a plot element here and pick apart if there's something to be said just with that episode alone. Uh, they, they were toying with that format at the time. And, of course, and it's interesting, you get to Enterprise, and they spent the whole third season doing the Zindi War yep. arc, with a, a couple of exceptions of standalone episodes there. Um, so we'll see. You know, every now and then we will do a... Um, uh, we'll do a two-parter as a single podcast episode, but then more often than not, we look at it and think, ah, you know, there might be something to just focus on with this episode and then pick up with a totally different discussion for the second part. So depends on how much we want to watch ahead. Yeah, but also take, taking that to, to another degree, then if you'd have done that with Deep Space Nine, you might have missed out on then the importance of things like uh, in the in the pale moonlight and how important oh, yeah. that was. If you'd have just taken it as a, as a, as just a story for the whole season, you would have right. missed out the the intricacy and how why that was important and what the message was of that. And then you've also got other bits like you know, I mean, in the same sort of era, those last couple of seasons, you've got some real classic episodes of trek there that have really important messages because you've got far beyond the stars in that in those last couple of seasons as well and you've yeah. got uh, it's only a paper moon and the whole nog being disabled uh, elements in there as well so yeah. they're really important and in a sense it's good that you 
looked at them as individual episodes for the most part, because otherwise you might have missed the the nuances in those episodes. Well, well, those absolutely work on their own. I mean, even if you knew nothing about the intricacies of uh, the the Dominion War. You take an episode like in the Pale Moonlight, and the the setup and the resolution in that episode by itself absolutely work. It, it helps if you know the rest of what's going on, but you don't absolutely need it. Same thing with uh, Paper Moon. You know, yeah. e- even if you know very little about Nog, you know that he's been hurt. And really, the focus of that episode is his recovery, um, and it told beautifully. I, I really liked our discussion on that episode in Mission Log, um, and, and certainly, wow! I mean, Far Beyond the Stars is uh, just a a knockout. I kind of wish they had had the boldness to do what they talked about at the time, which is ending the series with that episode. I thought that would have been, you know, I, I think it would have certainly angered a lot of Star Trek fans, but I can see why they had an impulse to at least consider that. Yeah, it wouldn't it wouldn't have worked, although I was glad to see Benny Russell make his return. Yep. Uh, in in uh, Strange, Strange New Worlds. Worlds yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. I'll look forward to that when that when I see it. <laughs> oh, spoiler! <laughs> well, <laughs> not not that much of a spoil, spoiler, but no. uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's the thing about Picard, particularly the second season. You know, the first and the second, and maybe the last episode standalone. The other seven, yeah. they just don't. Yeah. Well, and, and what's unfortunate is that you can kind of go through and you can see where a slump that might be a slow act two in a five-act show suddenly becomes like two or three episodes that are the slump. And it's like, all right, did did these really need to be their own episodes? Could we have told this story in another way? So I, you know, I have mixed feelings about Star Trek being um, the serialized show that it is now. I, I think Stranger Worlds has hit a sweet spot for me where it has the continuity that I wish that TOS and TNG had in their day. Um, but it has the standalone watchability that I wish discovery and Picard had now. So they've, they've managed to at least hit that part right for me. Well, I do know that I'm looking forward to watching strange new worlds because a lot of people have said to me that it would suit me because my favorite Star Trek being the original series and it being the closest mm-hmm. possibly to the original series, maybe with the exception of Next Generation. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of TOS blood in it. And I think updated for the most part very appropriately. You know, e- each captain is sort of the captain of their era for when a show is developed. And the stories also need to reflect the modern sensibility they need to reflect modern concerns um and i think they've they've done that well but it's a really difficult bridge to straddle between being uh um how should we say not not necessarily honorific but respectful of the original series um but also making sure that it doesn't just feel like a relic you know, uh, and that that really is the hardest thing to do when you're telling a story now that is 50 
seven, 58 years between pilot and pickup. <laughs> you know, uh, the cage was shot in 1964. Here we are in 2022 watching this new Star Trek series featuring Captain Pike. So a 58 year gap between when that was developed and what we have on air now. Um, you have to reinvent pieces of that to make it appealing to a modern audience, but you also have to make it feel familiar to an audience who grew up with TOS or, or for whom that holds a special place in their heart. And then, you know, the, what they've done to the characters and the setups, it does honor toss for the most part, but like Christine Chapel, that's almost a completely different character from nurse Chapel in the original series. And I think that was a great choice. You know, you, you have to make your choices about what stays the same and what gets reinvented. Christine Chapel in the original series was, I mean, let's face it, they, they created a character because the network rejected number one in the cage. So here was this extra character that they just sort of slipped in because Gene wanted to give Majel something to do. And that's great. I think that's a perfectly good motivation to create a character. Um, but there wasn't a lot of meat on the bones there for her. Uh, the nice thing about Strange New Worlds is it's set far enough in advance. You got, what is it, seven or eight years that people can grow into the characters that they become. You know, uh, we, we see Spock dealing with week to week being logical, but being emotional. The Spock that's in the cage is a very different Spock than we get in TOS. And the Spock that we get in TOS, who very blatantly in uh, the naked time is fighting with his two sides, is a very different Spock than we get in the motion picture. Uh, or the Wrath of Khan and beyond, for that matter. So, so I like that you, you can have these little hallmarks of a character, but then you can allow them room to change. And and I I, I think I hope that's what we're doing here as well. Uh, Ethan Peck is a winner. Uh, you know, I like Zach Quinto in the Abrams films, but Ethan Peck, he just cannot be beat. It's as close as you can get to Nimoy without being a copy of Nimoy. It's a little sacrilege to say it, and and sometimes I I watch myself where I say it. I love Zachary Quinto. I think he's great, and I think he was wonderful reinventing that character for the big screen. I think Ethan Peck is my second favorite Spock now, <laughs> second only to Leonard Nimoy. Well, I certainly enjoyed him when he was in when he was in the episodes of Discovery that I've seen. I thought he was fantastic as Spock. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and he's better in Strange New Worlds. <laughs> uh, absolutely, yep. Well, I mean, essentially, that season of Discovery was an introduction to Strange New Worlds anyway, wasn't it? I mean, they'd already got the idea for Strange New Worlds, I think, on the back burner to work on. So it's almost like a soft introduction, essentially, them being in Discovery. It yes and no. So I mean, part of the part of the thing about the way that those shows are made now, and part of the way that it's sort of the nature of the beast that you know have these shows that are made in their entirety before they make it to air. Um, I mean, 
Marv, you're in the UK, so yep. uh, shows seasons there have typically been shorter, and shows tend to get produced in their entirety and then released. In the US, particularly during that period of, well, TOS up through Enterprise, you have shows going on the air as they're being produced. Very different now to step into Star Trek where you're completing a short season well before it's ever seen by the public. So you throw out an idea like the end of season one, and then Discovery encounters the Enterprise. Okay, nobody had really thought about what that meant going into season two. What? Yeah. Who were we meeting there? What? What will that? Will they be a part of the story going forward? We don't really know. So then, season two gets written. Season two gets filmed. They flesh out that story. And if I'm not mistaken, um, somebody out there can correct me if I'm wrong. If I'm not mistaken, by the time they had finished season two, yes, they knew that. Pike would be a standout. They knew that this would be a great direction to go, but those sets had been destroyed. There was no plan to make strange new worlds hot on the heels of discovery season two. It took time to actually get there and decide, Oh wait, maybe we can make this series. And by that time, discovery season two was already done and almost ready to go out to the public. So, um, you know, TV doesn't always have great foresight, and particularly now, you have to wait much longer to get an audience reaction. Uh, I think they'd struck the Enterprise sets, but I don't think they'd actually destroyed them. I think they just stored them. I think they knew that they were going to use them for something. Uh, you know, they, spent, they spent far too much money for building an Enterprise set, which you're going to see for 10 minutes, 20 minutes. Uh, yeah, during, but, but during remember, season two but, of Discovery, but there was no plan to go on to a new series, you know. So that that's yeah. <laughs> I think Kurtzman and and Anson Mount are fudging a little bit. I think they certainly had it in the back of their heads from the very beginning. From the page, I think they knew that these characters are working in the way well, we're writing uh, uh, them. Off the record, not for attribution. I'll tell you a different story when we're finished recording. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And we're from the Spy Hards Movie Podcast. That's right. And you are listening to Pods Like Us, the podcast that has a license to thrill. So, what is your first memory of Star Trek or any other sort of um, geek? Um, as we call it, because you also do have done the DVD geeks. What's your first memory of Star Trek or any sort of uh, the world of, of geekdom? I wish I could remember what that was. And, and that should tell you that it was pretty early on. Um, I can't remember a time in my life, especially in my childhood, that Star Trek or Star Wars or the other kind of geeky passions that inspire me weren't around because I feel like they always were. Um, I I was at the absolute right age, you know, four or five years old when things like Star Trek are in reruns, 
uh, we're getting Space 1999 on public television in the U.S. Star Wars is coming out. Um, Six Million Dollar Man is on the air. Fast forward a couple of more years and you get Battlestar Galactica. So all of that stuff was around me all the time. And I think, I think my grandmother had made for me a uh, Six Million Dollar Man running suit uh, when I was about four. And I had, there's a picture of me wearing that and wearing the Star Trek utility belt and holding my Mego, Spock and Kirk action figures when I'm about four. So uh, that definitely is an early memory. And and I think I must have seen the animated series pretty early on as well. So that, that stuff was just always around me. Um, and and stuck, it, you know. Clearly, it just stuck for <laughs> forever and ever. Um, and with that said, you know, my interests sort of came and went over the years. So when I was in college, and I started working, I was less connected to Star Trek on a weekly basis, like I had been when uh, when I was you know, a kid or in high school. Uh, but then I, I found it again and I've been attached to it ever since. Did the animated series live on beyond the couple seasons it aired originally? Uh, I, I just don't remember uh, whether it stayed no, on Saturday. No. So essentially you had a season and a half. You have uh, 22 episodes and the second season is only about six episodes. So 1973 to 1974. And as was the case back then, they got rerun all over the place all the time on Saturday mornings. And what was cool is that if you were a kid like me in that period, kind of right after they aired. So again, 76, 77, Star Trek is in reruns. The animated series is in reruns. There's anticipation about a new movie. Um, The merchandising was sort of this weird blend of all of those. So the Mego action figures, the color form set, uh, the toys and stuff, they, they were this strange but but generally very good mix of TOS and the animated series so that no matter what you were watching, you could get the appeal of, of either one, you know? So I, I, I feel like that was a lucky time, you know, to be a kid then and to be a Star Trek fan, you could just sort of go like, well, to be a Star Trek fan means that I'm a fan of this one thing. Ever since TNG came on the air, Star Trek, well, and really more specifically when DS9 came on the air, Star Trek stopped being a story and started being a franchise. And that then changes, for better or for worse, it changes the fandom quite a bit. Because then it's not just, I am a Star Trek fan. It's, well, I'm a, I'm a fan of this series or this captain or this timeline or this, you know, there's a lot to take in there. Yep, and therein, I mean, it's there's a lot of disc, you know, discussion between people about the, all that subject. Exactly, you know, what is your mm-hmm. trek, and yeah. what what treks do people not like? What do they like? And I mean, me personally, I think people who've dismissed some series in the past should look at them again. I think personally, because because when you go back to some of these shows you actually realize that there's something more to them than you initially might have thought. Because some people might have looked down on something like Voyager or even, I mean, Enterprise is well known for people being 
putting the series down. But there are a heck of a lot of really good episodes therein, such as, I mean, I'm giving it away now, but one of my, I've put down as one of my fake, my five trek moments is the whole of season three of Enterprise, which I ah, think is an incredible yeah. piece of work. I, you know, I was having a similar conversation with somebody the other day and uh, trying to figure out what is that, what is that distance of time that allows us to appreciate a series from the past. Um, TOS, I always say, was lucky that it died when it did. Star Trek as a whole is lucky that TOS died when it did because that then forced the fandom to really coalesce and create conventions and create fan art. And that that was the impetus then for a network to say, oh, maybe there could be some life in an animated show or subsequently a new series slash movie slash series slash movie, you know, um, but we, we were saying that uh, a show like Voyager, uh, DS9 as well, TNG, TNG had its fans, but it also had its detractors from the start for sure. But you give these things about maybe 10 to 20 years and people start to look back on them much more fondly. I, I was always impressed that, uh, you know, Enterprise went off, went off the air in 2005. I went to my first uh, Vegas Star Trek convention in 2006, and I thought, I don't know what I'm getting into here. I think I'm the only person I know who was a fan of Enterprise. And sure enough, I got there, and there are tons of Enterprise fans. Scott Bakula has a bigger crowd than Shatner. And I just thought, oh, okay, here are the people coming out of the woodwork to appreciate and express their fandom. So it happens. It, it, sometimes that happens quickly. Sometimes it takes a little longer, I think. And, and it could just be my bias because we've arrived at Voyager on Mission Log. Um, but I feel like Voyager is getting and has in the recent past been getting that attention again. Yeah, that's the interesting thing about Voyager. When it aired, and, and I will admit, Voyager is my least favorite of the Trek series. There's a lot of good stuff in Voyager, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, maybe at the time we really were suffering a little bit from Star Trek fatigue, particularly Berman Star Trek fatigue. Sure. Voyager was kind of just a continuation of the next generation. And, and, you know, they ignored the fact that they were halfway across the galaxy and uh, the problems therefore, and then merging the two disparate crews. You know, it's just kind of like two episodes in. Oh, OK, we're all one happy crew now. Yeah, yeah. You, you can really tell that um, because those productions all overlapped, you can tell how careful Voyager is trying to be because, well, you have this radically different show, DS9, so now we want to make something that can be an alternative to that, maybe sway back over some of the TNG fans now that TNG is off the air. Um, and no longer overlapping with DS9. So it's a little bit of design by committee, um, but it it absolutely has its strong points as well. That then is one of the benefits of where we are now with shorter serialized seasons is that you can do something experimental and then you can totally change it. (laughs) You know, Uh, you, you have the luxury of writing 10, 12, you know, 13 episodes at a, uh, as a season arc. And then when you're done, you can just go, like, hey, now we have some time and we can change this again for the next time around. 
yeah, I think they really didn't know what they wanted to do with Discovery. And, and uh, mm-hmm. the fact that they were changing production crews basically every six episodes for the first two seasons, they're, they're completely disparate. And then by the time you hit the third season, by the time they go into the future, now the fourth season is kind of a continuation of the third, I think. Yeah, yeah. And they yeah, they had all kinds of uh production growing pains and you know that that's all been covered and written about elsewhere but um yeah yeah they they had a, a troubled start for sure but then they they kind of course correct along the way and then yeah now in season four and going into season five they've they found their time you know and and i think that's what the you know we have to remember that in in three seasons a show like Discovery is doing what one season of TNG, DS9, or Voyager. Well, Voyager had a you know half season for their start, so it, it takes that many episodes to sort of find your footing, and it, it it then sort of opens the floodgates to be able to tell more and different types of stories in the future. So, I think years from now, when those series, when those new series have finished their runs. And you have the benefit of hindsight. You can look back at a show like Discovery and go like, oh, okay. The first season or the second season weren't my favorites, but they really found their footing in their third season. By the time they got beyond that, uh, it allowed me to appreciate maybe the characters as a whole or the the journey as a whole. I always tell people that uh, Enterprise, I became a fan of because I started it in the third season. And I feel like it really just launched to the stratosphere in the fourth season. I kept hearing about how the first two seasons were a little rocky, but because I came to it later and because I got to look at those in retrospect and I was already invested in the characters and where they were headed, I enjoyed those first two seasons a lot more. So, you know, everybody will sort of find their their way to appreciate or not the difficult thing now is that we're in the day and age of something comes out and five seconds later, there are a thousand hot takes about it on the internet. And, and that, that just creates noise for our ability as fans to be able to sit down and digest something and take it on our own terms and be able to look back uh, retrospectively at, at either an episode or a season or a full series and really be able to absorb what it's all about. But then there's a there's a history with some treks where it takes time for shows to actually hit their mark anyway. So oh yeah, I mean yeah, I mean uh, Next Generation didn't hit its um, mark until the second season, for instance, or even until Best of Both Worlds, probably. And from then on, yeah, it was, about third, it, was yeah. it just yeah. suddenly was there. And the same goes for Deep Space Nine. That had a troubled first season until the end when they started with the the political problems on Bajor and then in the second season they started bringing in uh, this sort of like mysterious um people in the in the um you know basically we'd find out that there were the there were the dominion but they were just spoken Mm. about and hinted at in the second season and that's yep. when it started to hit its mark. So all these shows, even I mean, Voyager has got its problems in the first season, and then Absolutely. eventually that eventually that started to hit some really good points when 
you get into like later in the second season and then the third season. So they've all got their new Star Treks have inherently got problems. Some yeah. you know when they start. Yep, a hundred percent. Yeah, and, and I mean, look that that goes for any show, of course. And Star Trek having such a baked in diehard fan base uh, that that's part of what the fandom is. It's picking apart and complaining and then taking time to warm up to the new thing. I remember when Next Gen came on, um, just before I'd even seen an episode, friends of mine who are also fans debating how ridiculous it was to have a robot on board named Data. How dare they? That's the dumbest thing. And to add insult to injury, they have a kid on board. What is this, loss in space? You know, but yeah, again, hindsight. Well, and that's why it's really so amazing. Strange New Worlds is probably for the largest majority of fandom, the single best first season of a Star Trek series ever, even including the original series, which by the back half of the first season is pretty darn good. Yeah, I mean, I think the first season of TOS is incredibly strong. I think there's only a few missteps there, and you can just tell they're running out of steam here and there, and that that's fine. Every show goes through that. But they had 26, uh, actually more than that for yeah, their first season. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so if you got a few losers in there, that's okay. The batting average is still incredibly high. Uh, the pressure is really on strange new worlds that you only have 10 episodes in the first season. I, I wish that they had done 13. I feel like that's a show that really could have uh, absorbed that quite easily because of the episodic format. Um, but I get it. There's all kinds of reasons to not do that. So I, I get it. Yeah. I mean, most of fandom, there's an episode here or there. They may, may not like, but it's, it's hitting 800, 850 for, Mm-hmm. 90%, 95% of Star Trek fandom. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it definitely is is doing very well, yeah. This is B. Nicole from Buried on the Tundra, and you're listening to Pods Like Us. So what's the history? First of all, we'll have a look at uh, DVD Geeks, because that was a television, <laughs> was that a t- television show, and then, and then you, you it made was. it into a podcast? Yeah, yeah. I mean that that's going back to like two thousand six ish, I want to say. And uh, a production partner of mine and I had this idea to to do a show that was uh, definitely leaning a little younger, a little hipper than like Siskel and Ebert, uh, but had more of like a roundtable feel to it. And uh, we shot it as a pilot chopped it around. Nobody actually bought the pilot, the half hour format, but we very quickly discovered that we could sell it as uh, short content. And um, I, it, it would show up in all kinds of weird places like like satellite interstitials, uh, uh, on demand. And then um, even like uh, we had a thing here for a while called transit TV. So you'd have like a running TV loop on buses and subways and stuff and then it would show up there we shot a ton of those then somebody else came along and said "Mm, you know what you could sell this as a half hour show to a satellite (laughs) so we did that as well you know and it kept going but uh, honestly at a certain point 
you know, self-producing a TV show becomes a very expensive endeavor. Um, so the the tide was turning. We made it into a live internet radio show that then could also be spun off as a podcast. So we did that for a number of years as well. Um, but that led to a lot of other projects. So that led to uh, a show that we did for AT&T that was for their on-demand and cable system called Biff Bam Pow Wow. And eventually, this is sort of the long story short to say that a lot of the content that I was producing for those shows led me back into Star Trek fandom um, more professionally, that's when I started shooting stuff for creation. It's when I started shooting and editing stuff for Roddenberry. That's what landed me doing uh, Mission Log and the other podcasts that I produce for Roddenberry. Uh, now, that the show was part of the Nerdist Network back in the day, right? Yeah, yeah. Because uh, Rod... And Ken, who is my uh, former co-host and production partner on that, the, the three of us weren't really sure how we would launch Mission Log. And we thought, well, if we do this in partnership with somebody else, that's the way to go. And, and it was, honestly, it gave us a really nice launching point. Uh, but then at a certain point, we just thought, well, you know, Nerdist is fine. They're, they're more than fine. They're very good. But should we just do this on our own. And we did, we did eventually not a little more than a year later. Uh, we did, we, we took it in house so then we could focus on doing, uh, that and other podcast projects entirely in house. So there was no fallout from the, the Chris Hardwick thing on you guys. No, no. I mean that, that I think that happened well after we were gone. Um, and I honestly didn't even follow it and don't know what the full story was there, but yeah, that I, I also know that around the time that we were there, it, I think it was right after Nerdus had been bought by another company. Um, so the, there were numerous changes happening. None of that had any bearing on our decision. It was more or less just a decision of, hey, what if we did this on our own? You know, we're we're not looking to get rich from it, but if we just kind of have total ownership over it, is there more that we could do? And there's a trade-off, you know, you you have that ownership, but then you have a smaller platform as well. So that's that's what we did. So had you had a relationship, a friendship with Rod for a long while before that? A little bit, yeah. Um, he and I met around that time, around 2006, 2007. Yeah. I was shooting stuff uh, for creation slash for my own shows, for uh, DVD Geeks, Biff Man Pow, etc. Um, and through that, Rod and I have stayed in touch he had asked me to edit some small pieces for the foundation and some other just kind of outside jobs. And we just, uh, we found that we got along. And then uh, the next time we were both in Vegas, we hung out for a bit and um, the, the friendship really started there. Then when I decided to move to LA uh, for various reasons, um, I just said, Hey, by the way, I'm, I'm going to be closer now. So if there are more of these things you want me to do, let's continue to talk. And we did. And um, I, I did some archival production for Roddenberry Entertainment. 
Um, that eventually, that was around the time that he had his documentary called Trek Nation come out, which was really about his father. As he was finishing that, that's when he said to me, I, I want to do something now that I've kind of covered my father. Now I want to do something about Star Trek itself, whether that should be a documentary or a podcast or whatever. If we approach it as a podcast, how do we do that? Could we do that as, is it talking heads? Is it celebrity guests? Is it episode by episode? And we just landed on this format of saying, all right, it's an episode by episode discussion. And there we go. Which is one thing that the whole podcast TV intersection has become. Now, you know, everyone does a an episode by episode breakdown of, of every oh, tell series, me about it, it seems. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and multiple of Star Trek and many more coming, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but, but that's okay. You know, pod, podcasts are fine. There's a low bar of entry to create a podcast, which is great. And um, the, the audience will find the voices that they want to hear or they will find the format that really engages with them and you know we, we never want to be too precious about what we do we said early on that mission log is a format that we hope would fit for other shows our concern in mission log is looking at this piece of pop culture for its morals meanings messages for its relevance that it has for an audience because for Rod, that's what he really wanted to explore. Why is it that people came up to his dad and said, your show changed my life? Well, let's look at that. You know, let, Let's be able to examine Star Trek on the micro level and on the macro level and really tease out what that is. Uh, but as you guys probably know, you know, we're doing Mission Log the Orville now because it's such a close cousin to Star Trek. Why wouldn't we? You know, and, and we've got ideas for doing other shows like that, too. Well, you, you mentioned that the Orville really is Star Trek with the serial numbers filed off. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the only difference is they don't have transporters and that's kind of it. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and, yeah. and good for them. You know, it, it it shows that the Star Trek format works well reinvented elsewhere. Like you could do it as a straight up comedy like galaxy quest you can do it as a quasi comedy the way that orville does they were much more comedic to begin with than they are now but also tell really thoughtful really uh heady and very personal stories as well well i mean that's that's the thing star trek is the human adventure as they mm-hmm. like to call it. I mean, and the Orville yeah. just shows that it can be adapted. Although, like, I still think it's kind of just a little bit too close. Uh, you know, I, I think that's fine, though. Like, go ahead and be close, <laughs> you know? Um, it, good for them. I, it, it, it's Seth MacFarlane doing his fan film, doing his fan series the way he wants. And and that's great. It means that Star Trek is inspiring. And more importantly, it means that there's an audience for that, which I think is great. You know, I, I learned very early that, um, you, you know, so few ideas are actually original and kind of going back to DVD geeks, you know, when we first took that pilot to, um, uh, not MIPCOM, uh, NATPE, which is like a TV production convention. You know, there are other shows doing 
DVD reviews and and uh, to us what was important talking about the extra features and just really literally like the title geeking out on our fandom geeking out on what makes these unique and it was never like a matter of feeling like oh somebody beat us to it or we're not good enough or whatever no no it, it just meant that the marketplace like there was a reason for these shows to be there. Yeah. There was a reason that this was in the zeitgeist that other people had these ideas too. And I love it that there's room for a lot of science fiction because honestly, there's room for a lot of types of programming today that we simply didn't have 20 years ago. You know, and of course, uh, uh, and of course Trek itself is really pretty close to Forbidden Planet. I mean, Gene, Gene liked to oh, yeah. you know kind of. Uh, dance around that a little bit, but you watch the two. It's like, yeah, that is very much proto Star Trek. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. It is. Yeah. Because that, that was one of the first science fiction movies that really took its topic seriously and really wanted you to feel like, okay, these are actual people in a real world situation as fantastical as it may be as, um, improbable as it may be still not totally implausible you have to you have to buy a few certain ideas at first but once you do then then you're along for the very human story that is forbidden planet but star trek i mean the one of the great things about it is and i was saying this to somebody earlier on today that uh, one of the great things is that star trek from its very inception has been a show that touches on certain subjects and the clever thing is that gene famously said that they could look at subjects seriously without actually mm -hmm. the film studios or anybody knowing what they're talking about so they'd look at they'd look at things like racism they'd look at the war in like a private little war that was basically around the um, the Vietnam War. So there've always been these people that look at these subjects anyway, which, I mean, I find it funny, you know, when they talk about discovery and the way that that is, and some people put that down for some of the ways that that's working, but people don't mm -hmm. realise that Star Trek was always about inclusivity and looking at these tough subjects and bringing them to light in a science fiction way. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, one of the big reasons that Gene made Star Trek the way he did is that he had just come off the lieutenant where he was being told left and right what he can't do. And, uh, and he was holding up these very obvious contemporary parallels um, dealing with things like racism in the armed services. And when he couldn't do that anymore, well, science fiction became this perfect uh, uh, play space, this perfect arena for him to explore these same ideas, but do it in a way that you could kind of come in from the side angle to reach your audience, you know? Um, and it, it, it's interesting to me that watching TV in 1966, when Star Trek was new, when it came on the air, um, you only had three channels but you also didn't have the uh, the sounding board, the megaphone 
that everybody has now in their pockets, which is their phone, which is their connection to social media, which is their connection to everybody else in the world to air their grievances. If you were a TV viewer in 1966 and you took offense to some idea that Star Trek had, um, you would turn it off and you might complain to your family or friends who are watching it with you. And that would be the last you'd hear of it. <laughs> you know, yeah. the people who really got it. Well, not only did they get it, but a few years later after the show's off the air, they put together conventions to find other people like them. Um, now it's just a different world where as soon as there's something that, uh, that doesn't align with your specific tastes or preferences or political point of view, you can go yell about it to anyone who also has that communications device in their pocket. Um, so, you know, I, I feel like there certainly were people in the sixties and certainly people in the eighties and nineties who didn't agree with what they were seeing, didn't like what they were seeing. But, you know, by that time, they would write an angry letter to the editors at Starlog. <laughs> that, would be, that would be about it, you know. All the, all the official Star Trek magazine, as it ended up uh, coming out as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what sort of research do you do leading up to each episode? Uh, so it's pretty much the same for every episode of Mission Log. Some of them change uh, from time to time, depending on the topic. Uh, first of all, you know, it is multiple rewatches of the episode at hand. And I typically like to just sit down and watch one on its own, sort of unencumbered. I'm not taking notes. I'm not just, just living it, just reacting in the moment to the episode. Then you got to go back and take down the cursory notes. How did I feel about this scene? What, what were the funny little observations that I want to make sure that I get? Then I go back and watch it again. Um, it, so it's at least three times for each because either I'm writing out the notes with a recap or I'm writing out the, um, uh, the, you know, the deeper discussion points. Those discussion points might need some additional research, it, it, particularly if there are topics that Norman and I just don't know about. And we want to have some, some way to express something to an audience, but they always come with the caveat of saying, look, Mission Log is not an encyclopedia. It is not meant to be the last word of Star Trek analysis. It is two people. It's four eyeballs and uh, you know four ears absorbing a show. We get to talk about it, and then we get to give that discussion to you, the audience, for then you to pick it apart and you to debate and discuss uh, what it is that you see. Um, when it comes down to the trivia stuff, well, I'm very lucky that there is a big bookshelf at Roddenberry that has just about every published Star Trek book you can imagine. Um some of them in languages I definitely cannot read, uh, but I will go to that shelf and grab like, oh, look, here's the Voyager compendium. Or, uh, you know, Ben Robinson sent me a copy of his Voyager book, uh, which I, I think now is the definitive book about Voyager. Um, we also have the archive, which I say is less helpful now with specifics 
because obviously we're in a period now that is after Jean died and after Majel had really any sort of hand in any of that. But we are lucky that Mike and Denise and a few other people donated some materials to our archive. So we do have some things. And if I need corroboration, if I need to dig a little deeper, I can always go in there too. Um, and then sometimes it's making a call. Sometimes it's calling up, you know, uh, Larry Nemechek or other people who are around who are working on those shows to send an email to, you know, Andre Bermanis or Naren or anybody who is there and just say, hey, did, did we get this right? <laughs> you know, uh, so th- those sources are many and varied. So the Akutas are around for you. Uh, I mean, you know, I consider them just the top of the uh, knowledge tree, certainly as far as the effects and the uh, certainly the diagrams and everything that was put into the the official encyclopedia and then everything that appeared on screen or at least through modern Trek. Yeah, yeah. And they were great because, you know, they they had their own materials. They also had some materials from ooh, I, I forget who gave them their stuff. But they they had a lot of paper that honestly was just starting to mildew and and it, it, it you know, they couldn't just keep moving it around and letting it sit in their garage. So we ended up with a, a good amount of stuff. We also had papers that Majel and Jean had kept that were in various uh, storage facilities around the greater Los Angeles area. Um, But yeah, Mike and Denise absolutely know their stuff. And uh, it was very generous of them to, to give some of those materials to our archive that we can get to. Yeah, it's great that you're actually looking after it. To, to, to tell you just a very brief Beatles story, uh, mm. Mark Lewison is the is the guy in the Beatles world who sort of knows everything, and he's writing the the big biography right now. And he goes out and interviews great. people, and every time he interviews somebody, he says, "What are you going to do with all this documentation?" And more often than not, they say, "You want it," and he takes it. <laughs> right? Good, 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 good. Um, you know, it, it is important to do exactly what he's doing and, and what I see a lot of other people doing, what Larry does, you know, uh, with Portal 47 or with uh, the Trek Files, which is, you know, another podcast that I produce at Roddenberry, which is you, you've got to just keep capturing these stories. And uh, uh, ultimately, you know, First of all, people are sort of flattered that you want to hear what they have to say, and then they realize that these materials need to have a second life. They need to get out there uh, for other people to share. So, uh, And that is another great thing. For as many bad things as we might say about the internet, that is actually one of the great things about it, um, is that then you have a platform to share and archive these things digitally so anybody can find them. Well, because it's it's official. I mean, that's that's one of the one of the great things about it is because then you have got those people that you can get in touch with and get the actual real information from, um, as we say over it, from the horse's mouth. Really, from the mm-hmm. actual people that were there. It's a bit like another show that I listened to. You, you've sort of hinted at because you liked uh, Space Nineteen Ninety Nine when you were younger. So I listened to the Jerry Anderson podcast, which is presented by Jerry's son, Jamie. And so the the, the official 
bit to that actually helps because then you've got it there from the people that were there essentially and that you know not yeah. not to denigrate any other shows because shows like you know spotlight who do star trek as well and keeping up with the cardassians mm. they they do a fantastic job of what they do but the official uh roddenberry estate part of it adds a certain something to it it does, and and sometimes that opens doors. Sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> I mean that that is very true as well. Um, uh, but yeah, it it does lend us sometimes a little bit of cachet and gives us a little bit of access, which is certainly nice. I will not turn that down when it is offered to us. Yep, and another plus point. I mean, having Ed with me from from when they was fab. Another thing is that. Mm-hmm. It's good when you have hosts that are sometimes of differing opinions as well with things because that makes a conversation much more interesting because if you constantly week after week had just people who were saying, yeah, that's good, I like that, and I like that, it it would be a bit stale in a sense. But having that differing – because everybody's different, so you're catching the different sides to Trek fandom. Exactly. I mean, we, we've always wanted to be fair and critical. Um, is it, it, just where it's merited and in what we feel like is the right spirit. Um, there are plenty of things about Star Trek that bother some fans that just don't bother me at all. But I'm also sort of training myself through Mission Log that... The, the the perspective that I try to have when I'm watching it is, well, okay, what is this show trying to tell us? What was the writer trying to get across to us? Maybe explicitly or implicitly, maybe by accident, they stumbled into a message. So as I you know said before, we're not trying to be an encyclopedia. We're not trying to be the one stop for all knowledge that is Star Trek. What we're trying to be is a show that discusses ideas. And we're really lucky that our audience has come along that ride with us. And they know that, okay, yeah, we we might be entertained by certain discussions or arguments or inconsistencies in Trek. But at the end of the day, that's really not what our show's about. Norman and I are like a couple of friends who just want to sit down and talk about the show that we watched. And we want to do it in a thoughtful and structured way and when we have disagreements we we want those disagreements also to be thoughtful and respectful because we expect the same thing out of our audience you know it's pleasing when we get an email or a comment saying hey with all due respect i found this other thing out of this episode great we want to hear that yeah well that brings up the issue of canon what are your thoughts on canon Uh, (laughs) yeah you've heard me refer to the c word on our show before i'm sure um i i think that canon is a tool for the writer's room um it, it is not something that viewers get to decide uh although uh, in the academic sense it can be a fun thing for viewers to uh use the old head canon and figure out like, ooh, can I 
can I put these two totally disparate ideas in line with each other? Are they going to work? Can I get from point A to point C and fill in with my own point B? Okay, that's fine. Um, I'm not somebody who watches Star Trek with the big uh, conspiracy board on the wall trying to, you know, use strings to connect all the dots. I I just I, I honestly don't watch anything like that. You know, I'm a huge James Bond fan and I, I enjoy it when the pre Daniel Craig movies would give you a little hint or a little reference to something that occurred before when Roger Moore's bond is visiting the, uh, the grave of Tracy bond yep. who we last heard about and on our Majesty's secret service. Okay. In my head, I didn't need to think like, Ooh, that is exactly the same actor and character and exactly the same life events that got us to this point. I didn't need that. What I needed was just to understand like, oh, in the Bond mystique, in the Bond character biography background, he has lost a woman who he was married to, and that was important, you know? So that, that those are the sort of broad strokes that I think are important. When it comes to Star Trek, I, I, I just don't have the patience or the bandwidth, to be quite honest, to try to force everything into a a sense of canon and i'll give you a good example like i really enjoyed the enterprise episodes with the augments where they they did this whole thing about you know the genetic changes that got us from the smooth-headed well the bumpy-headed klingons to the smooth-headed and then also some other bumpy-headed klingons you know that uh, fine so they wanted to tell that story I'm here to tell you, though, I was also totally fine with just leaving that and ending the discussion with Worf saying, we don't talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's I'm fine the best. with that. Although, although I still want to know, how, how did how did Core go from bumpy to smooth back to bumpy? You right, know? right. I guess the <laughs> genetic alteration wore off. But, you know, I, I just, at the end of the day, like... I I hear the voice of that character. I I feel the uh, the attributes of that character. So it's the same character, you know. It, uh, obviously, the Gorn being different between TOS, TAS, Enterprise, and now Strange New Worlds. That is a point of discussion among many Star Trek fans. I, you know, to me, maybe because I'm such a nerd about production as well, and I sort of, I want to know how things work and how they came together. Um, I don't really have much of a problem just saying, well, production techniques were different in 1967 than they are in 2022. So I imagine a producer, whether it was Gene or Bob Justman or Gene Kuhn, wanted me to think that that Gorn in arena was terrifyingly vicious, could absolutely rip Kirk apart. They, they wanted to get that across to me, but the production value at the time, the production techniques of the time wouldn't really get us there, <laughs> you know? So, so then it, it gets reinvented. It gets reinvented every, you know, 20 years or so because then you've got the cg version and enterprise which is faster moving and more vicious 
but now in hindsight suffers from the CG shortcomings of a show made in 2004. So yeah, I just, a lot of that stuff doesn't bother me. <laughs> Although on that point, I do kind of like the headcanon that people have come up with that. Oh, the Metrons said to Kirk, this is the, this is the species that we're calling a Gorn. Right. It's not, <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So Kirk's yeah. confused. Um, all right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that, that that's totally acceptable. I think that's fine. You know, I also like the, the Gorn that we meet in Strange New Worlds. These are juveniles who have not been raised by any sort of adult, uh, communicative, uh, uh, socialized Gorn that presumably would be around them, would get them to do things like fly spaceships and use tools and stuff like that so so we don't know we we just don't know all right well, i was i was going to say well you know if if the six million dollar man was made now bigfoot would look a lot better than he did in the six million dollar man <laughs> yeah, that's very true that's very true yeah i mean i i just i i like the fact that Star Trek fans generally that uh, that I know and that I have come across in all my years of fandom are creative and thoughtful people. I mean, when I think of fan fiction, I, I think of the birth of modern fan fiction being because Star Trek fans wanted to write things to fill in gaps and explore other stories with the characters that they like. So if... Star Trek fans can't be creative enough in their own minds to say, hey, it's a big universe. <laughs> you know, all of this stuff can exist. It honestly doesn't matter if some little details don't always align, then that's okay. Um, I, I certainly, as a kid going to see Star Trek, the motion picture for the first time, got it right away that those were Klingons on screen that I was looking at. And these Klingons looked really cool. And it didn't matter that they didn't look exactly like the Klingons that I had seen in the TV show almost immediately before that. No. Hey, this is Brian with Concerts That Made Us podcast. And you're listening to Pods Like Us, a great show about other great shows. But another good thing about your show is that you've had some really incredible guests over over the years as well. Mm. And we're not just talking actors; we're talking behind behind the scenes people as well, like you know that have worked on um, actual sets and the the and such. So, have you got have you got any? I hate to say that, ask this in a way. Are there any that really stand out to you? Yeah, I mean, uh, well, uh, Doug Drexler has been on my mind recently because he's had uh, some personal tragedies in his life. And I, I, I feel absolutely tremendously for him uh, first and foremost, because he's just one of the nicest, most enthusiastic, warm people that I've ever met. And you wind him up and let him go. And inevitably it'll be a great conversation. I loved having him on mission log live to talk about the connections between the 1964 world's fair in New York and star Trek design. Right. That was a blast. That that was one of those deep dive nerdy topics that I always wanted to do. And he was the best person to do it. Um, another interview that I was really happy with was uh, John Delancey. Typically actors, I'm not 
that excited to talk to. I mean, I look, I'm excited to talk to anybody who comes on our show, yeah. but usually it's writers, producers who can give you some insight into the thought process behind a show. An actor's job is to live that moment just for the time that the camera's rolling and then move on, you know? So actors don't always have the insights into what their shows were about or or what the writer was trying to get across, you know? So very often when we have an actor on, I'm more interested in, in the conversation that is not about Star Trek. And John Delancey was one of those who we just sort of bonded over a lot of other things other than Star Trek. So the conversation was really easy, really natural. Um, so I like that one quite a bit too. Well, J- John Delancey, I mean, one of the great things about it is that, that playing the character of Q, it doesn't actually show up that much in Trek, but for how little that he's shown up, he's such a huge presence in the world of Trek so yeah, he's done an right? incredible job there of that role. Yeah, he's just sort of indelibly, you, you think about him as part of the cast of Next Generation. <laughs> and, and really, like you said, he wasn't there that often, but his presence is so incredible. And hopefully that wasn't the end of him at the end of Picard, although maybe, I mean, you know, maybe, maybe they're trying to find another actor to replace him as Q in future tracks, I don't know. Right, right. Yeah, I guess we'll find out. But he can certainly show up in Lower Decks again. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Or Prodigy. Or Prodigy. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Because he has a good re- he has a good rapport with Janeway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he want he want Janeway to be the mother of his child. So right, right. <laughs> I. Kate's been saying that she wants to come back to live action. You got any, you have any hints on that that you can give us, man? I no, no, nothing that I can give you from an inside uh, production point of view, but I would love it if she did. I, I rewatching Voyager now, starting Voyager when we did 16, well, yeah, 18 weeks ago. I just have a newfound appreciation and love for her portrayal of Janeway. I mean, it's one of those like seeing Shatner as Kirk or uh, uh, Patrick Stewart as Picard. You can't picture anybody else. And she's bringing something wholly original that was right for that character at that time when she was created. Um, If we get more Janeway, live action Janeway, or I know we're going to get more animated Janeway, but if we get live action Janeway, I am there for it 100%. Yeah, I think Seven Seven and Raffi have made their mark. I almost can't see them not going for another series with Seven and Raffi. Uh, that would be wonderful. That would be wonderful. Yeah, there, there's the whole thing about Seven as a Fenris Ranger that I think uh, definitely would make for a good series or mini series or something. Yeah. Well, and, and then not only would that allow you to bring back whoever is available of the Voyager cast. Uh, I was talking to Martin about this. You could bring back any of the Deep Space Nine people. True. Because, I yeah. mean, you know, they're, yeah, they're all together. Yeah. yeah, no question. Go, go on, Ed. Carry on with this, because I thought that was intriguing, your your suggestion for, for a Star Trek series. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, well, what, what I was thinking was that uh, what they could very easily do, either as a Fenris Ranger or 
depending upon which they, way they go with Seven, I mean, you know, when we last left her, she was going to be in Starfleet. Picard gave her a field captaincy. Oh, that's so, right. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, for, the other thing I thought was you give them three or four years and you can bring on a whole new crew. You could be launching the next Enterprise-based show. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. I mean, they. It, it's interesting to me that all of these actors keep wanting to come back, <laughs> you know? Uh, so you you could fill out. I mean, I, I'm almost of a mind that I don't necessarily want to see another show that is based on a specific ship. And that is the story that we will follow through. Like, I, I like what they're doing with Strange New Worlds. I think that's cool. I think it's a period that I'm interested about. Uh, interested in and characters that I'm interested in. I I kind of like the idea of Star Trek doing like miniseries, do do a six episode run of you know seven doing what she does, do a six episode run of uh, whomever else you want to bring back. Make, make it uh, y- you know the the. Dax and Bashir show. I, you know, whatever you do, or make it Captain uh, uh, Captain Riker on the Titan. But I don't feel like we need to adhere ourselves to like five more years of that. I think just having these bursts of these characters and something that is meaningful would be great. Well, or some combination thereof. I mean, mm-hmm. they're going to have to come back to do an Enterprise show at some point in time because I mean that really and truly is the backbone of what Star Trek is. Is people a crew on a ship named the enterprise going around having the, these adventures. Sure. Well, I, I so. fully expect strange new worlds to go another five plus seasons. So when we get to the end of that, <laughs> let's see, yeah, yeah, for sure. see where we are. Yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of people think that they're bringing in Paul Wesley because well, three or four years from now, they're just going to go straight into toss part uh, two. TOS reboot. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. What did you think of Paul Wesley's Kirk, uh, by the way? Uh, I, I'm not quite certain about it, but I understand it's it's a different Kirk that we saw in that episode. Uh, yeah, I mean, to be honest, I didn't love it. Um, I, I also don't love the idea of just, you know, recreating a story. Um, I, I get that it is about Pike and Pike's journey. It's about command decisions. It's about these other things. But, um, I suppose if you're going to do a fan fiction esque, let's approach a story from a different angle. That's fine. Uh, but like I said, at the top of the show, Ethan Peck is my second favorite Spock. Paul Wesley is not my second favorite Kirk. Chris Pine. Um, Chris yeah. Pine did a great job, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and I don't know. I don't know if it's how he was directed. I don't know what decisions all were made to get us to that Kirk at that time. Um, but, you know, I, I also, I, I feel like I'm a little bit, Maybe part of my not appreciating that episode as much as I appreciated everything else in Strange New Worlds is that I'm so invested in these characters, in Pike, Una, Mbenga, uh, Ortegas, Chapel, 
Ohura, they're all so good. And I just want to follow them. Like, I, I don't need Star Trek to constantly remind me about TOS or remind me about Kirk or how sort of cosmically important Kirk and Spock are. What I like about this Spock that we have in Strange New Worlds is that he is Spock learning to do his job and getting to know this crew. And, and that's all I ever wanted out of these characters anyway. Like Kirk, Spock, McCoy, that triumvirate, they are great for the series that they're in. They are great for the episodes that we know and love. But what I need them to be is just people who are awesome at their jobs, who love each other deeply as friends, and who make very hard decisions that can be sort of uh, uh, a bit of a guidepost to us. Star Trek is morality plays. That's what I want to see out of them. What I don't necessarily need to see is sort of the the hand-waving, the telegraphing to the audience. No, 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 no. It's not just that they're good at their jobs. It's that they're the linchpin. They're the most important people who ever lived in the universe. And if they didn't, and if things didn't play out exactly the way that you remember them from TOS, then the universe as you know it will come crashing down. Well, I think the, Mi- uh, the Michael Burnham syndrome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and look, we, we've seen every Starfleet captain save the universe. We saw Cisco do it. We've seen Picard do it on multiple occasions. We've seen Kirk do it. We've seen Burnham do it. I get that. There's a difference to me, though, when you just sort of say, by divine right, <laughs> you know, these these few characters are that important. You know, I, I think it it actually, um, it, it's, it, it's sort of like an unfair way of coaxing the fandom to say like, see, look how important your fandom is because these characters are that important. Like, no, no, just show us, don't tell us. Although the, the misstep character-wise... We learned more about Una in that short trek than we did almost in the whole season this year. I know, I know. Well, I hope we get a lot more of her the next time around. Well, yeah. Well, it, it makes us wait for that next season the way the first season ended. Sorry, Martin, but we're not telling <laughs> you. That's okay. I'll probably have forgotten by then at my age. Yeah, okay. There you go. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm particularly fond of the John Belushi uh, Kirk, by the way. Kirk, of course, of course. He is a great Kirk. Yeah. Yeah. That YouTube so, video where Shatner is uh, evaluating the impersonators. I love that. Oh, yes. That's a great video. Yes. <laughs> What's up, everybody? This is Chris from the podcast Real Film Reviewed, and you're listening to Marv on Pods Like Us. So, have you have you put some thought into the uh, what is it top five Trek moments then, John? I have, I have. Um, so let's see here. I, I, I mean, do you, do you want to do? I, I didn't really order them like top to bottom. Or let's go by series. Okay. All right. Well, I, I can tell you right now that most of mine, actually, all of them are TOS characters, okay. but they are not all from TOS. Okay. 
So I, I will go in sort of roughly chrono, chronological order, and then I won't. <laughs> but I will go back to the very beginning, and I will go back to the first regular episode of Star Trek, which was shot, which is Corbin Light Maneuver. And that is Kirk's speech in the Corbin Light Maneuver about how there are no unknowns. There are only things temporarily hidden. And it's in the context of this address to the crew where he's bracing themselves. First of all, he's got an ace up his sleeve, but, but that's okay. At least he thinks he's gambling a bit here, but um, he is reminding them of why they're there, the dangers that they face. And in the face of that, the openness and curiosity that they're required to have about everything that they encounter. And I think that that so importantly sets the tone of what the show is about, but also what Starfleet is about and what the guiding principles of these people are all about. And it comes right at the beginning. It comes right in that first episode that was shot as, as part of the regular series and they nailed it. And that's why on Mission Log, we almost always refer back to the Corbomite maneuver as the template for the rest of Star Trek that would come after it. Absolutely. So um, you want me to keep going? You want me to keep? Uh, you can keep going if you want to. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. I mean, I, th I think we've uh, all done five actually. Oh, okay. Okay. Then, then here, then I, I will, I will cede uh, the floor, <laughs> and uh, you guys go right ahead. Go on then, Ed. What's your first uh, one? Okay. Well, I mean, I'm going to have to go with. Sitting on the edge of forever. I mean, Kirk, when he's holding back McCoy so the future can be what it is, you know, that's just so heartbreaking. It, from someone that you don't expect it from, you know, you trek to that point. Kirk was the fighter and the lover, and he's a real guy here. You know, it's like this has to happen, and it just breaks his heart. Yeah, that, it's funny that that was my runner-up moment because I it, it's so good and it is so heartbreaking and you, you and really it's Joan Collins. I know yeah. and you feel you feel their that... chemistry. Yeah, so good. But, but that, that's on that's on my list as well because I mean uh, I've, I've got Downey. You know, even even the lines that I said, you know, where McCoy says, you know, do you, do you know what you've done? And then Spock says to him, "Yes, Doctor, I think he does." You know, and then you all the emotion that, that Shatner's got in that performance there. And then the payoff at the end of the episode where he's just that exhausted from it all. And is that emotionally scarred from it that you get that line at the very end where he's, you know, let's get the hell out of here. And mm -hmm. it's just so much emotion in there. It's one of Shatner's standout moments, I think. Yeah. Uh, okay, so Martin. that was your. That, that yeah, is that mine. is one of mine. Yes, that was okay. Oh. Yes. All right. Well, uh, then I'm going to go to another uh, Kirk speech here, and that is from Taste of Armageddon, and that is Kirk being accused of being a barbarian because he would dare to let these people have their wars when they're bloody and face to face. And he gives that great line about you know I may be a barbarian, I am a barbarian but I can choose not to kill. And it, it is one of those just, again, fantastic Star Trek 
telling the audience what its principles and values are and saying, I have the ability to make better choices. I have the ability to fight my worst impulses. And that's what we should all do. Um, and in the context of an episode that is as anti-war as Star Trek ever got in a, in a brilliant science fiction metaphor, reminding the audience that at the time was in the throes of the Vietnam conflict, uh, reminding them that war is nasty and people die. And we, uh, all but for our decisions, <laughs> that, that is what gets us there and can get us out. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Ed, what's your all right? Uh, number two, Wrath of Khan. I have been and always shall be your friend. Mm. Yes, and another big moment yep. for for Shatner there for Kirk. Yep. So I mean, you know, there's not much to say about that except. Yep. Nimoy nailed it. Yeah. 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 100%. Yeah. What you got, Marv? My, my next one would possibly be uh, the moment in Balance of Terror where suddenly on the screen they get the first sight of a Romulan and then when when the when you see that and then the crew member turns around and looks at Spock, <laughs> it's yep. just amazing you know because you can feel that sense you know exactly what that crew member is thinking yep absolutely that that is a great moment and must have absolutely been shocking to an audience that, seeing it for the first time you know and then Kirk's response yeah yes the racism doesn't hold up real well i think uh you know what uh I don't know. I mean, I, I think I, about. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Where, where do you live, Ed? Texas. Okay. I mean, I, I, I think about post nine eleven America, and there were people who were being targeted solely for the way that they looked, because there were enough Americans who couldn't get it in their heads that somebody with brown skin. Uh, isn't necessarily a terrorist who is in a cabal with the people who did this terrible thing, you well, know. And there, there was, you know, how much Asian violence was there just because post- of COVID? I, I COVID, certainly yeah. get that, but yeah. uh, you know, for a Star Trek future, and then particularly when they sort of uh, handed those lines off in this. Uh, in this, uh, in the remake on Strange New Worlds, it's like, yeah, that's not that, great. That 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 took a lot more to to swallow for sure. I, I think with Styles, because we don't know anything about him, um, it, it was an okay choice. And I tell you this: the best thing about it is Kirk dispatching with it right away. Yeah, no place yeah. for bigotry on my bridge. Boom, we're yeah. done. We are done, and that's the way it should be handled. Um, all right, I'm going to go with uh, another Kirk line here, a specific line. And we're skipping all the way up to Star Trek V. What does God need with the starship? <laughs> because the only good line in the film, right? <laughs> the only good line. Well, there are other good lines in that movie, but it, it is so important. And I think that for a series that has kind of skirted the lines of of how it will approach and deal with religion and the supernatural 
Um, here was Kirk at his Kirkiest, uh, just confronting with the most perfect few words as possible, confronting this presumed God being and exposing him for what he is. I, I think it's great. And I think it applies to so many of the other uh, self-important godlike beings. <laughs> that, Apollo. Uh, Apollo. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So. Although I, I don't, I would have liked to have seen them kept some of Pike's uh, Christian ethos in Strange New Worlds. In Discovery, he was much, he seemed to have much more of a religious upbringing in, you know. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if that'll come up again. I don't know. Yeah, we'll see. So okay, uh, my third uh, best of both worlds: the cliffhanger. Yes, sure. Locutus on the screen. Yep. Yep. Hard to argue with that. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm sorry to say that's that that's one of my choices as well. I'm Locutus of Borg. But yep. How much of a difficulty was it for them then, though? Then they'd. They'd done this cliffhanger, but apparently they didn't know how they were going to pay it off at the beginning of the next season. Uh, that That's what I'm saying. Like, would you do something big and bold like that? Uh, like, you know, having Discovery encounter the Enterprise at the end of season one of Discovery. That's what you do. You You write in the cliffhanger and then you go home and then you try to figure out how to get out of it. <laughs> what comes next so well work sleep was a little bit weak i think yeah yeah <laughs> um all right so i am going to uh i'm going to go to one that uh, this obviously ed you already nailed it and that is but i, I i'm going to take it slightly different i am uh, and always shall be your friend i'm just sort of blanketing that under spock sacrifice slash funeral i think the way that is all played out I think the music choices there, the editing choices there, um, all the, the the urgency of the situation is played incredibly, and it is one of Star Trek's greatest earned moments because it comes after our fifteen year relationship with these characters. So um, it's it's brilliant, yeah, and, and it gets me every time. Okay, number four for me. I mean, you you already mentioned it a little bit. It's the whole recreation of the bar scene in Trials and Tribulations, particularly Worf's <laughs> reaction to those are Klingons. Right, right. So. Awesome. We Good. don't talk about that. <laughs> we don't. We don't. <laughs> so my, my next one would be uh, that, um, that scene in Far Beyond the Stars where René Aubergenois has the line about uh, people will not accept a black station commander. That that bit there uh. is so it says everything in that one line. And and Rene was always incredible at delivering his lines and bringing the emotion out in it, and just amazing. Yeah, yeah, I, the, such an incredible episode, and so many good moments like that. Like uh, Benny just breaking down at the end of that episode is incredible stuff in there. Um, okay. My, and this really is my top. This is my number one here. Um, it is the moment in the motion picture when Spock comes back from his spacewalk and is laying on the bio bed 
and grabs Kirk's hand and says, this, this simple feeling is beyond Vijra's comprehension. Because to me, that is the turning point in adult Spock's life. That, that is the moment that the TOS Spock becomes the Wrath of Khan Spock. That is the, the time that he is finally, finally able to reconcile who he is and his place in the universe. Um, and, and it speaks to the central message of TMP, which is that the answers aren't out there. The answers are inside you and with the people whose lives you touch and people whose lives touch you. All right. So, so my, my last moment comes from uh, the first season of Picard after they come through the portal and the reunion of Picard with Riker on Nepente, you know, the family, the, the whole business of uh, these people yeah. moved on, but they're still connected in this fashion. Yeah. Great moment. The, the whole episode is great. That's yeah. quite possibly the, the best episode of the first season of Picard, which is weird because it's really a quiet little episode. Yeah. Okay. I was going to say that my last one was the third season of Enterprise, but that almost sounds like just coming up with something. <laughs> hey. But I do think that it was great how it how it worked for the most part for that se- for that season, how it had a, how it worked together. An incredi- it, it is incredibly a brave. great. Yeah, I it, it was groundbreaking. It was thoughtful it was timely i mean we, we talk about the time that all of these shows were produced being reflective of the times that they're in and that being shortly after 9 11 it, it was something they needed to do and i thought they carried it off very well yeah the temporal cold war you know future guy that whole conceit i never really loved although i like yeah. it better now that we've seen some of that future in discovery uh yeah yeah for sure but but as it was, it won great. Yeah, <laughs> I I like Daniels actually as a character and as a guy on uh, Archer's Enterprise. But the the whole oh we're fighting this temporal cold war and this is going to happen and that's going to happen and uh, here's yeah. something from the future. It's like eh, yeah I yeah I, I'm not a fan of that. Yeah. All right. This is Dave of Live Life Loud, the Decibolic Podcast, and you're listening to Pods Like Us with Marv. So how do you record and edit the show then, John, or does somebody else do it? Uh, Well, it's a combination of things. I mean, uh, primarily Norman and I connect over Zoom. We record that meeting, but we're also recording locally. Uh, so we record via QuickTime or Audacity to get our isolated tracks and and nice and pristine without the you know sort of interference of the internet. Um, and then now Earl Green, who is our technical director, edits the main Mission Log show. I, I usually edit other things like the Trek files or. Um, uh, uh, he and I split the job on Sci-Fi Five. So we, I have a hand in it, but primarily on the main mission log, it's Earl. Is he employed by Roddenberry or is he part of the show or? Well, I mean, all of Roddenberry's podcasts are 
paid for by Roddenberry. So okay. we're, we're all, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're all under the gotcha. umbrella. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So does Earl work on, work on the other shows as well, such as Fan Addict? Uh, no, Earl doesn't work on Fanatics. He works on Mission Log, Mission Log Live, and Sci-Fi 5 primarily. And then I pretty much take on uh, the Trek files and about half of the Sci-Fi 5 workload. Yeah, because I was going to say earlier on, and I forgot to say that, you know, I mean, uh, Roddenberry, the, the podcast shows that they're bringing out now are very in- incredible for, for those of us that are into that sort of, that have that geek love. He's, <laughs> right. he's hit that, the shows have hit that mark really well. Yeah. Well, I mean, part of the, I guess, sort of the guiding principle for Roddenberry is remembering that connection to fandom. Yep. You know, you have to remember that Roddenberry Entertainment started because it, that's what was Lincoln Enterprises. And Lincoln Enterprises was Gene and Majel and, you know, John and Bijo Trimble kind of coming up with how do we sell and market Star Trek to the fans, especially when Star Trek was gone. You know, is them hitting the convention circuit and the college lecture tours and and all of that. So it's all about that connection to the fandom. And they got some incredible things out of it. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah the the film clips that are on the Blu-ray, the the Roddenberry files. That's some amazing stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The vault is excellent. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I've got that Blu-ray as well. That's great. So, do you have a set structure to the episodes that you actually record? Uh, yeah, and actually with Mission Log, things are very, uh, they're very scripted until they aren't. So we know the format, we know what we're getting into, but the best part about it is when Norman and I have taken extensive notes and they're, they're all color coded in there and we, we don't read each other's stuff. We can kind of see like, ooh, here's a chunk where Norman has something to say, here's a chunk where I have something to say. And then the best part in the world is when all of that goes out the window because we just start having a conversation organically. Um, and that's why sometimes the shows run short or they run long, but it doesn't matter. We're just a couple of guys talking. Well, the great thing there is that you, uh, that because neither of you know what you've actually written individually in your nose, is that then you mm-hmm. respond to that, and that's where that comes from. Yep. It's part of the the trick of Mission Log, and that's why having the right host combinations is really important, because otherwise it could just come across as very stilted, like, now you say this, now I say this, or it could sound too loose, like it, 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 it lacks structure at all. But we always try to hit that happy medium. Yeah, because you always have a specific specific topics that you're going to look at. So you'll look at mm-hmm. what's the morality of the episode. Does the episode still stand up today in in this day and age as opposed to when it first came out? You have these right. marks that you're going to hit specifically that you will always go to. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, we always always know where those are coming, but then it's all about finding the organic conversation around that. So have you got a geeky hot take, something that people should actually be watching or have an interest in? 
Ooh, you know, uh, so essentially all, all my geeky pursuits are, I, I, I laid them out at the beginning of the show, you know, Star Trek, Star Wars, I was into Galactica, um, James Bond for sure, a lot of the Jerry Anderson stuff I love. Um, but because my daily life is surrounded by Star Trek so often, um, I tend to unwind with something other than that. <laughs> so um I have been watching Barry on HBO, which is great. I've been watching Our Flag Means Death. Um, I really like The Gilded Age when that was on. So there's a bunch of HBO shows for you there. Uh, I've been watching Pistol on Hulu, which is based on Steve Jones' biography about being in the Sex Pistols. Um, and I love a lot of vintage TV. You know, I love uh, like variety and talk shows from the 60s, 70s, uh, Johnny Carson, Dick Cavett. Uh, uh, Playboy After Dark, um, uh, the Dean Martin Show, stuff like that. I, I just that that's sort of like my wind down kind of show. Uh, have you been into uh, Marvelous Ms. Maisel? Yes, yes, Love, yes. I haven't, I haven't fully show. caught up on it, but I that is a great show. Yeah. But uh, another show, if you have Apple TV, uh, Ronald D. Moore's current show, For All Mankind, yes. it is tremendous. I yes. love that show. Indeed. Yeah. I, I think one day there should be a mission log about that. So, it, yeah. You know, it is, it, it is almost a Star Trek prequel, uh, you know, except that it's based off of r- real world things. Right. Exactly. So, exactly. you know, oh, okay, so so we did it wrong. We should have let the Russians beat us to the moon because that leads to Star Trek. <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> right. But, I mean, Ronald D. Moore, the, the work that he's done since being part of Star Trek is amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, he left a big thumbprint on Star Trek, as did Brennan Braga, as did Jerry Taylor, as did a lot of people. But it, it's so cool to see the other stuff that Ron did after, like Galactica and uh, For All Mankind. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what advice would you give to people wanting to start a podcast? Oof. I mean, uh, well, I mentioned one of those things earlier when talking about DVD geeks, which is don't be don't be concerned about what other people are doing there's room there's room in the marketplace uh because there are listeners who will find you you know um now that said the hard part is that it is a grind you need to be consistent you need to just keep working at it you need to take criticism and fine tune what you do um, whether it's, you know, formatting or the technical aspect of what you do. Um, so find the people that you trust to give you good advice and make sure you take it and absorb it, know when to take it, know when to kind of leave it behind. Um, and I also feel like the nice thing about podcasting is being an inch wide and a mile deep, find the thing that is your passion, find the thing that is your niche and just be the expert at that. You know, uh, uh, be relentless in pursuing that thing, because if it is too loose, then people won't know why they're listening to you. You know, um, there are very few shows that can survive the way that 
you know, a drive time DJ would in the 70s, where you're just, you're a captive audience, you're turning on the radio to find what's ever there, and just sort of enjoying the voice of whoever is on the other end. No, no, it's a little little different world now, where you, you have to find that thing that makes your show unique, that makes your show specific, and then, uh, you know, relentlessly go find your audience for it. And then to add to that, I mean, you know, as we've discussed many times, Martin, have fun. Have fun. You know, that's yes. 100%. If it's not fun, don't do it. Yeah. Absolutely. But but like you hinted at there, I mean, you know, there are there are you might find that what you're thinking of, somebody's already thought of something similar to that. So like mm-hmm. I hinted at earlier on, where there are other shows that look into the world of Trek, the yep. good thing about it is that they're not competing with each other. Because no, I know, I know that you have a good rapport with Liam and others from Spotlight and from other Trek shows as well. That's the good thing. It's like Ed with a lot of Beatles-related podcasts. They are friendly mm-hmm. with each other and they get on with each other. So because there is room for all of these shows, it's just that you do it all differently and there's an individuality to how you approach the subject. Absolutely. Well said. And the more things we can get out there to, you know, about these subjects like Gene's work, the better, yeah. really, because it's important. Yeah, exactly. We need- and, and people will find you. People will find you because they're interested in the topic. So, um, yeah, and then and you you end up having uh, a rapport with your audience. You know, you end up having this uh, this conversation virtually, but it, it's great. So I think we're getting we're just about out of time here. Uh, on our way out, did you actually know Majel? Did you get a chance to meet her and uh, speak with her? Uh, I met her, but I didn't really know her. Um, she was around a bit, and uh, the most time that I spent around her was in her later years when her health was failing. So um, yeah, I I didn't really know her. Now there are other people that I work with at the office, and uh, obviously with. Uh, rod around i get a better sense of who she was mm-hmm. um but yeah yeah I, I regret that i didn't i wish i had so where can people find the show and get a hold of you john uh the best place for everything would be at podcast.roddenberry.com if you go there all of our shows are listed and then you can Click on the individual show and get all the platforms where those shows are distributed. So some have a video com, uh, uh, component to them. Others are audio only. Um, and then mostly with those shows, our hosts, me included, uh, we have our social media handles as part of that page. So if you go to podcast.roddenberry.com, you will find everything. And hopefully you will find that show that is right for you. Absolutely. Have you got any special shows that you're looking forward to coming up? Uh, you know what? We're hitting convention season right now. So I've got a lot of work ahead of me at um, San Diego Comic-Con and then in Vegas. And um, what I'm hoping is that we have a good, robust few conversations in Vegas that we can turn into podcast episodes. So that's really what I'm looking forward to because it'll be the first time I've seen Norman in person in a while. 
and we get that live audience feedback and those uh, questions from the audience. So I'm really looking forward to that. So look for those like end of August, beginning of September. Vegas is a bit smaller now that it's not the official Trek festival every year. Or is that not the case? That, that's kind of the feeling I'm getting. No, yeah, not not smaller at all. I mean, I think they have like 120 plus guests listed still on the site for this year. And when I was there last year, the place was packed. <laughs> so well, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I expect it to be a big show again this year. Yeah. What, what weekend is that? Uh, third weekend in August. It's like the 23rd, 24th, 25th, something like that. So right when the new uh, episodes start rolling back in. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, we should have a premiere party there, I'm sure. <laughs> so, Ed, have you got anything coming up? Uh, well, I, in a similar fashion, I am on my way to uh, the fest in Chicago in the middle of August. And so we'll have some special programming coming out of that. That that should be a lot of fun. That's great. And how can people find when they was fab and get hold of you, Ed? Uh, well, the easiest way to find us is on our Facebook group. Uh, if you want to look at past episodes, you can find them on whentheywasfab.podbean.com. And Martin will be putting up links, I'm sure. Absolutely. Anyway, thanks for speaking with me today, guys. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm glad that we finally got to do it, and uh, this was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Thank you. You can find Pods Like Us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok, and you can contact us through podslikeus at gmail.com. Anyway, thank you, everyone, for listening, and hope you listen again to another episode of Pods Like Us.